All right, good morning, everyone. Hymn 498. Hymn 498. Stanzas 1, 5, 6, and 7. Come, Holy Ghost, Creator blessed, and make our hearts your place of rest. Come with your grace and heavenly aid, and fill the hearts which you have made. Drive far away our wily Just to know the Father's Son and you from both as three in one, that we your name may ever bless and in our lives the truth confess. Praise we the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit with them one and may the Son on us bestow the gifts that from the Spirit flow. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, on this, the day, on this day you once taught the hearts of your faithful people by sending them the light of your Holy Spirit. Grant us in our day by the same Spirit to have a right understanding in all things and evermore to rejoice in his holy consolation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week is from John again, John 4, 14. Let's speak this together. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Okay, we had this last week too. Begins with whoever. Uh, but who is whoever? Anybody. Remember last week I said that's the temptation to think that it's anybody, but it isn't. Because the Lord says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. But then we don't commune some people. Why? It says whoever. Yes, but says whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood. If you, if you say it isn't his flesh and blood, you're not eating and drinking his flesh and blood. I mean, you are, but you're not, right? So whoever is sort of a more specific thing than you're led to believe. 
by the English language. Yes, believers, that's what it is. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, that's whoever, the believer, the believer, the believer, hey, drinks of the water that I shall give. Uh, it's not something that you do. It's something that the Lord is providing. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him. And Christ says, here is the water that I am giving you. The believer says, yes, Lord, amen, I'll drink that water. The unbeliever says, nope, I don't want that. I don't want what you have to give. The gift is rejected. Okay? He who does not believe does not drink. So whoever that is of the believers who, that drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Now, of course, you can say, well, Jesus is a liar because I still have to drink water during the day because I still thirst. So obviously, when he says he will never thirst, he's not talking about physical thirsting. What is he talking about? Okay, spiritual thirst, yes. And you can, you can tie that into what he says in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not just, oh, anybody who's on the street corner who says they're hungry and thirsty, well, blessed are they. I'll, I'll give them magic water that they'll drink and then never be hungry or thirsty ever again. That's not what it's about. It's about the spiritual hunger and thirst, the hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in Christ, you're never going to hunger or thirst for righteousness ever again because Christ is righteousness. But the water that I shall give him will become... This is important too. Become in him. It's transformative. It isn't what it was. It does something to you. It's not just satisfying you. It works on you. It does something to you. And it's going to become a fountain. And what do you think of when you hear the word fountain? Okay. Both of those are answers I wasn't expecting, but they're good. What else? If I say, I want to go look at the fountain, it just keeps on going, yes. It's a continuous, it's, a, it's the, you know, the water feature. If I'm, I put the fountain in my garden because I want a nice feature, and every time I look at it, it's, it's doing something, it's working. There is a fountain of water, it is in you doing this. It's going and it's going and it's going, springing up, into everlasting life. There's motion. Remember, not in everlasting life, but into, which means you're going from something else to everlasting life. And if everlasting life is where you're going, what are you leaving? Yes. You go from everlasting death to everlasting life because of the fountain of water springing up into life. Now, here's the question. There's a lot of talk about water here, and the drinking of water, and the catechism is about the sacrament of the altar. So how do you look at this 
and get the Eucharist out of it. There's, there's two things. The first is this. The water that I shall give him will become in him. So you're, you're taking it into yourself and it's becoming something in you. It's transformative. That's what the Eucharist does. It transforms you. You are what you eat. You take a little bit of Jesus into you and it works on you. It, like I joke around, it's like the atom bomb that I drop into your mouth. Blasts away sins, creates a new landscape, uh, changes the ecosystem of your entire body to be something new and different. A movement away from one and toward another. Transformation. I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but isn't there a hymn that says, there is a fountain filled with blood? Yes. Yes. So, in a way, this fountain is, is Christ's body of blood. Yes, good. Good. Uh, there's another thing, too. Every time it talks about water, there are two really big, really three, actually, really big scripture references that I would encourage you to think of every time you see that in this particular verse. Can you think of any, perhaps, of those three? Yes, out of Christ's side gushes blood and water. Correct. That's one of the three. Can you think of another one? One of them's in the Old Testament. Two of them are in the New Testament. Not the crossing of the Jordan. No. Yes, when Moses strikes the rock, because that was last week's verse, the context of it, Moses striking the rock, the, the rock is struck and water pours out and it is life-giving. Just like Christ is struck, he is pierced and outpours the life-giving offering. And the last one, this is maybe one you wouldn't imagine right away. John chapter 2, the first miracle that Jesus performs. Do you know what that is? Yeah, water to wine. That's an important miracle for a lot of reasons, but one of them is the fact that it's wine. Turning the water to wine, the combination of water and wine together, the blood and water out together, the institution of the Lord's Supper being wine that is the blood. So all of this stuff ties together. And of course, the fact that it's a marriage celebration, a wedding celebration, which is what heaven really is, one big long one big long wedding ceremony with the best wine and you don't have to worry about waking up in the morning. Somebody got it. <laughs> I don't know if that says more about you or more about me. Okay? Let's speak this again. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Yes, how can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking do these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say. Yes. Whoops, sorry. Yes. Uh, certainly not just eating and drinking. This is important language. Certainly not just eating and drinking, which means eating and drinking are a part of it, 
They're just not the only thing, and it isn't the fact that you eat that makes it work. That's something called um, ex opere apparator in the Latin, which is something in the, in the Lutheran Confessions of Latin. It means from the work worked. So basically, if you check the boxes, if I do it the right way, then it just works because I do it. Or the, the sacrament works because I do the work of eating it. No, it works from something external, not from the fact that you're doing the work of receiving it, but from the fact that it is in and of itself something that performs. So it's not just eating and drinking that does it. It's not magic. Uh, it's the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, part of the verba. Where the word is, there the spirit is as well. And the word, of course, is Christ. Anytime we talk about word or words, you also have to see that as double entendre because it's really about Christ. Christ is there. The spirit of Christ is there. The spirit of Christ delivers Christ. At, like from the sermon last week, Christ isn't here standing right in front of you like this. Hey, chums, it's good to be back. Give me some fish and I'll eat it in front of you. He's not doing that right now. But he is here in spirit, by his spirit, whom he has given on, well, today, but whom he promised to send forth so that he's not here locally, but he is localized in the sacrament. And every time that a pastor preaches, that word is present and it is delivered by the Spirit and it's by the Spirit that he preaches the word. It's all kind of a big knot. Anything the Trinity does is one big convoluted knot. So, the words written here, given and shed for you, the forgiveness of sins. Now, these words, along with the eating and drinking. You can't have the sacrament if you're not going to eat and drink it. And you also can't have the sacrament if the only thing you're going to do is eat some bread and drink some wine. One is a supper, one is not a sacrament. So there has to be the verba, there has to be the word and the accompanying spirit, and there has to be the eating and the drinking. The two go together. So I don't you know, uh, consecrate and then hold it up and say, well, this was a nice sacrament and then put it all away and tuck it away for next time. No, you, we do that and then you get to come and then you eat it and you drink it. What good is it to you if you're not going to eat it and drink it? What good is the, you know, what good is the still life or the bowl of wax fruit to the starving man? <laughs> it's nothing. It doesn't do anything. You have to have the goods. You have to have the real thing. You've got to sink your teeth into it. You have to eat and you have to drink. And this is the other thing. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say. This is what I'm talking about when I say whoever. Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say. So when you come and you want to commune at this church, I talk to you either at the rail if, I don't, if you don't if I don't get the chance beforehand, or preferably before the service, so that I know if I can commune you. If I say, this is the body of Christ, and you say, not amen, no, then I'm not going to give it to you, because for everyone who believes, it is forgiveness of sins. But to whoever does not believe, it is bleach under the kitchen, under the kitchen sink. It's poison. I'm not going to poison you. The church doesn't want to poison you. I'm not going to commune you. It's always the body and blood of Christ. Never stops being the body and blood of Christ. But for the one who receives it in faith, it's a good thing. The one who spurns it, it's a bad thing. It'll be the body and blood whether you believe it or not. But if you believe it, you receive in faith the gift and it works in you for good. 
instead of working in you to your detriment. Questions? Yes, sir. As we look back in history and when Christ finally passed and that was left to the disciples, you got to look and says the water sprang up. But those little springs had to happen everywhere around the world. Christianity wouldn't have happened. Sure, yeah. And so now we see this are fountain drying. Perhaps. Uh, okay. Children, you may depart to Sunday school. You know, it's funny that you say that, Larry. I'm going to... Because I mentioned this last week, I think, at my... at the big graduation banquet for the fourth-year classes at the seminary. The speaker that we had talked about, you're the generation that's enlisting in the military in World War II. You know what's out there, and you know you're probably going to die. Me, we enlisted in the easy times when they were going to pay our school and we had to do basic and then it was kind of like, well, whatever, you go in. And it was easy. Uh, and he said, this is the other thing he said, my church, which is, if you go to Fort Wayne, that guy's church is like the Mecca. If you want to go to where Lutherans are, his church is that place. So my church is a pond. Uh, and when I went into the ministry, there were oceans all over the country. And the oceans are now ponds that are very quickly drying up into puddles. And in a few short years, there aren't really even going to be very many puddles around because the country is turning into a desert. So you can't say that guys don't know what they're getting into going into the office of the ministry. But hey, you know, we don't do it for fame or glory, which is a good thing. <laughs> All right. Heath Bierman, come to the front. I heard a story about you this week, Heath Bierman. I'm just kidding. Can you help pass these out for me, please? <laughs> My lovely assistant, uh, voluntold to be in this position, is, is handing out something I promised that I was going to share with you. Because we got on the topic of sloppy liturgy, why every little thing matters. And I told you I had this little article to share. And then things got crazy this morning, and the printer had a bad battle with me, and I had to exercise it. And, you know, <laughs> so it's just I didn't have it out on the table in time. So we're not going to look at it. Don't have time to read through it. But that's for you. Read it. It's really funny. And I bet you most of you can look at it and picture a time when something like that actually did happen. Uh, I know I can. So, and, you know, speaking of, of sloppy, it's always, it always makes me feel weird on the Sundays when we have red, because the church doesn't have a red chasuble yet. So it's just the stole. And then you see all the pleats, and I'm all self-conscious about making sure the pleats line up, because normally they're covered. See, here's the funny thing. And, and I'm going to apologize. Thanks. Because when I tell you this, you're never going to be able to unsee the image that I'm going to put into your mind. You'll, it'll, never, it'll never go away. So I'm going to scar you for life here. <laughs> the alb, this, this white robe, the alb, is a, it's an undergarment. It's a liturgical undergarment. So it's like pastor underwear for Sunday mornings. And it's meant to be worn underneath the full chasuble, which is why you don't really see much of this, because the chasuble just kind of covers it all up. And so, like, 
walking around like this with the stole, just the stole and the, and the undergarment is sort of like showing up to the White House's big black tie supper in whitey tidies and a necktie. Hey! <laughs> see, you'll never be able to unsee it again. I'm going to be up there. The Lord be with you and everyone's going to be going, Ugh. All right. Anyway, let's talk about, let's talk about death. I printed more handouts. They're, they're back there. We've, we've been running out. We're still on the first question, of course, with our, our rate of study. What is death? We talked a little bit about that. Death is, this, simply put, it's the separation of the soul from the body or the dissolution of the union. Dissolution of the union is perhaps a better way to say it because there is a union, which we'll talk about later in this handout, it's in there, about what the union of body and soul really, really is and what it consists of, and what you, as, uh, as mankind, as a human creature, what you consist of and why you are different than all the other animals, why you are the ones who have dominion over creation, and frankly, why I think the idea of evolution as it's presented as common thought and opinion is simply a laughable idea. Um, but let's look at a, a few places here about this is temporal death. Remember, we made a distinction. Temporal death, just when your body dies and we have a funeral for you and then we put your body in a casket in the ground. Um, so let's, let's look at Genesis 35. I'll just read this here. Uh, 16 to 20. This is the death of Rachel. And they journeyed from Bethel. This is Jacob and his group. And where there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. Who is this son? This is trivia to see if you remember. Who are the sons of Rachel? It's the, it's the two dearest sons of Jacob. No, Esau's his brother. Benjamin and? Yeah. Benjamin and? Joseph. Joseph and Benjamin are the sons of Rachel. This child that she is giving birth to now is Benjamin. This is one reason why Benjamin and Joseph were so much dearer to Jacob's heart than his other sons, uh, to the chagrin of his other sons, because they were born of... Different mother. Yeah, well, this is going to sound really horrible, but the wife he wanted... Uh, I mean, he loved Leah, but Leah was a surprise on the wedding day. You know, kiss the bride, and he lifts up the veil and says, Huh? You're not who I thought I was marrying. Uh, so that was, that's a whole other thing. But anyway, so this is Benjamin. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, in parentheticals. I mean, that's enough of an explanation. Her soul departed, for she died. Death is the soul's departure, that she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, 
And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So she, her, her soul departs from her. Um, which is kind of an interesting concept. How does the soul depart? Is the soul winged? Does the soul have flight? How is it that the soul can depart? Uh, there's a great hymn by Martin Schalling, which we've looked at before, Lord, Thee I Love With All My Heart. I think it's something like 708, 709. Just an absolutely gorgeous hymn. That's one of those that no pastor worth his salt can sing without crying because no pastor worth his salt has gone to gravesides or to bedsides without singing it. It's sort of like that hymn becomes kind of like the stole. Every time you put it on, it gets just a little heavier and a little heavier because more stuff is saddled on to it. But, um, Lord, oh, it, it talks about um, angels carrying the soul. To Abram's bosom bear me. Bring the souls away. So there is, at least in some, some of our hymnody and, and some of our writings, uh, this idea that the angels are the ones who, who carry the souls to the Lord. And I'm not going to be the one to say that they don't. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I've never seen it. But this is another reason why if you're ever, like, so you go to your mom and dad's uh, deathbeds, pastor's there giving last rites, and your mom or your dad, who has not really been lucid, starts to say, oh, there are angels, I see angels, and you say, oh, oh sure you do, and then you, you think to yourself, well, oh, oh, maybe she did, maybe she did. And then you say, well, what do you think, Pastor? Do you think she really saw angels? And I say, well, 100% I do. Somebody tells me that they've seen angels. Who am I to tell them that they didn't? Just because you didn't see them doesn't mean they didn't. Uh, here's the thing about my job. I don't think that I've seen more miracles than you have. But the difference between me and the difference, but the difference between me and you is that I recognize more miracles than you do. There's a lot of things that you see and you don't think about and you take for granted. Um, here's a really good example. A baptism, which we have today, by the way, and the choir singing, so we have to get out early. A baptism. You look at a baptism and you think, boy, that's a really nice thing. We want our kids to be baptized. That's great. Thanks be to God that it's happening. We love it, we love it, we love it. But when's the last time you ever looked at baptism and thought, boy, I just witnessed a miracle? It's what it is. Baptism is something we take for granted, even as we realize its importance, because it's a miracle. When's the last time you saw somebody who was dead be made alive? Last time you saw a baptism, actually. <laughs> a baptism is Lazarus walking out of the tomb, but you don't realize it. I told the ladies' guild, I, I, this was sort of a tongue-in-cheek question, and it, it was one of my, you know, notorious trick questions, and I said, how many of you have ever seen someone raised from the dead? And everyone, of course, said, oh, no, never. We've never seen that. I said, oh, really? Because I have. I didn't say pop up out of the grave. I said raised from the dead. And, uh, and you know, this was when I was a field worker. I was like a first-year seminarian. Didn't know anything. First-year seminarians either don't know anything, and those are the best ones who know that they don't know anything and are scared, like little kids, or there's the ones that think they know everything as their first year, and then their entire year is professors going <laughs> and pulling the rug out from under them. 
<laughs> so here I was at my fieldwork church. My supervisor said, just got a call. So-and-so is in the hospital. She's dying. Uh, I need to go into Bloomington to the hospital, and you're going to come with me. And I said, I am? And he said, yes, you need to do this because this is, this is part of your instruction and part of my responsibility in field work. This will be a good experience for you. And I said, okay. So we hopped in his car, we drove to the hospital, we got to the room, we walked in. And uh, it was the most insignificant and helpless that I have really ever felt. Because you walk into a room full of weeping family members and you're in a collar and they all look at you like somehow you're supposed to make it better. And they just, and I was a, I was a first year, I didn't know anything. I was in a collar because I was at my fieldwork church, that's all. And they all look at me and they're like, come. And I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know what to do. So my supervisor just kind of grabs me and he brings me over to the bedside. He said, here, sit on this, I'll sit by you. And then he gave, he gave last rites and the whole family's just like, I mean, breathing on us, they're so close to us. And then... This pastor said, well, let's sing some hymns, which is my pastor growing up always did that. My supervisor did it. It's something I really like. That's something I always do at, at, at the bedside is sing hymns. And so we started singing hymns. And, and it was that hymn, the Shalling hymn, Lord, thee I love with all my heart. We were singing that one. And even then, that was a hard one for me to sing. And so here I am sitting there with my supervisor, just <laughs> barely even able to get the words out. And this woman's oxygen is going, down, her heart basically stops, and everybody starts grabbing her hands, and we just keep on singing, and you know, we get to the th final stanza, and we just start singing it really loudly, because it's all the one about being safe, all about being safeguarded in Christ. And as we started singing that, all of a sudden her oxygen went, and her heart went, boo, 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 and she sat up, and she went, oh, well, hello, everybody. And everybody just kind of stared at her, and she lived a whole nother week. <laughs> And I tell you, that, that's a miracle right there. I've never seen anything like that, or I hadn't at the time. I have since then, but you, know, you, see, you see miracles. So who's to say that an angel isn't the one who takes the soul and safeguards it? You have a guardian angel now. Maybe Lutherans are scared to talk about it because they think it's maybe, I don't know, too Catholic or too Orthodox. Or something. Well, we don't talk about guardian angels. That's funny because it's only been for the last 50 years that you haven't talked about guardian angels because since 1517, uh, you've been talking about guardian angels. Uh, hate to be the bubble burster, but, you know, it's what I'm paid to do, so... Uh, you've been talking about guardian angels. So, you know, you have an angel that watches over you in life. Who's to say that then in death that angel or more don't carry you? I don't know. I'm never going to say no. Yes, Bill? Luther's morning and evening prayer say, let your holy angel be with me. <laughs> the evil fool may have no power over me. Yeah, that's right. Hey, by the way, to anybody who doesn't like making the sign of the cross and thinks it's too Catholic, you know, Luther's evening and morning prayer before you pray those, Luther says in the small catechism, hey, first thing you do when you wake up in the morning, make the sign of the cross. First thing you do before you go to bed, make the sign of the cross. So, I don't know. You take it up with Luther, not with me. <laughs> okay. Um, right, so separation of the soul from the body. The soul departs. Now, I don't mean this as to say like the soul is some kind of, you know like when you watch a rocket, a rocket launch, when they send, they send astronauts up to the, I thought I was going to get chewed out. <laughs> when you, when you send, they send the rocket ship up to like the International Space Station and the fuel, the, the rocket goes up and it gets to a certain place and then the fuel things come off. 
and then it keeps going. It's not like that. Like the soul is, all right, here we go. The body, we've got to shake the body loose. <laughs> oh, it's about time. That feels good, you know? It's not like that. And this is all tying into something we'll talk about later, which is that the soul and the body are not independent things. Soul and the body are not independent. The mind is not independent either. They're constituent parts. It's sort of like, you know, if your hand gets chopped off, it doesn't get up and run around like the thing from the Adams family. You know, your, ha your hand isn't independent. It doesn't get to run around. Um, your, your body doesn't function without its heart. When the heart is removed, then you die. If you don't have a heart, you don't live. It, it, it's sort of the, like that kind of a union, a union that is so essential to the very foundations of your being that to separate them is catastrophic. So when the soul is removed from the body, you know, I would, I would say it's not an independent thing that rocket ships up. It doesn't break the fuel cell of the body and let the body go down and keep on going. And the idea that, well, the body doesn't matter because we're, oh, you know, well, we're going to heaven. Again, whatever heaven is, which we'll talk about someday when we get there. But the idea that, oh, well, I I'm going to be in heaven, so the body doesn't matter. Absolutely ridiculous. I've never heard such tripe in my life. If your body didn't matter, the Lord wouldn't have given it to you in the first place. If your body didn't matter, Christ wouldn't have taken on a body. Like, oh, psych, guys, it's just, you know, then you get into the heresies of the incarnation. Oh, psych, it was just a puppet. You know, like God put his finger into creation and made a little finger puppet and then walked the finger puppet around. And the finger puppet died, but, you know, God didn't really. It was just the finger puppet. How ridiculous. No, your body matters, and it's that very body that's going to rise. Why do you think we take such care of it? Why do you think funerals are such somber events where we don't mess around? You know, talking about not screwing around during the liturgy, a funeral is the worst place to screw around with the liturgy because there is so much being confessed there. That body matters. How it is treated matters. How it is carried matters. Where it is placed matters. I'm a prima donna about where the feet go. And any pastor where the salt ought to be. Because of everything that's confessed about that body, I've made funeral directors turn a body around before. And they said, no, 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 this is not the way it's buried. And I said, yes, it is. Turn it around. Don't tell me how my people are going to be buried. I'll tell you how they'll be buried. You don't know. Because we want you facing the way where you see Christ. Because Christ is going to come and he's going to pick you up. He's going to pull you out of the ground. You're going to stand up and you're going you're to look him right in the eye and, you know, I, and probably Jesus, would rather him not to pick you up and see your best side and then have to turn you around. Okay? So there's a way, there's an order to all of this because it matters, because your body matters. So just because the soul departs your body doesn't mean that somehow, yo, this is what I hate when you go to a funeral and they say, oh, well, the body's just a vessel. Right? Okay, well, by that logic, mothers are just vessels too. You, you don't matter, women. You, you're just, a, you're just a, a vessel for bearing children. That's all. Are you offended by that? Mothers? Are you, would you be offended if I said, you don't matter. Men matter because they do something. But women, they don't matter. They're just vessels for children. And then if you don't have a child, well, you're kind of a worthless woman then, aren't you? Because your whole job is to have children and then nothing else. Is that offensive to you? Yeah, it ought to be offensive. But you see, that's the same logic that says the body is nothing but a vessel. You should, any human should be offended if you, if you say, well, the body's just a vessel. Oh. Well, thanks. So nothing matters, I guess. This whole life doesn't matter. The flesh and blood doesn't matter. 
so I guess I can eat Twinkies all day for every meal and then blow up to 4,000 pounds. And oh, it doesn't matter, right? It's just a body. It's just a vessel. I'm not taking it with me. That's, you know, that's the other thing. Oh, my goodness, I hate that so much. I'm not taking it with me. Well, actually, you are. Okay, so, I mean, even if I blew up to 4,000 pounds, I think that my, my glorified body probably would be, you know, in nice good shape. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the idea that it's a vessel. You know, there's a Greek, um, there's, a, there's a Greek trilogy of, of plays called the Orestia, about Orestes, um, Agamemnon the king kills his daughter Iphigenia, yeah, ready for the soap opera. He, he kills his daughter, Iphigenia, before he and his army head out to Troy for the Trojan War. And the reason that he kills his daughter is so that the gods will give him favorable winds so they can make it to Troy on time. He kills his daughter. Well, his wife, Clytemnestra, is angry at him. And... <laughs> And uh, so she plots her revenge. So when he comes back, she kills him, taking revenge for him killing their daughter. Well, then their son, Orestes, is in a real bind. And this is kind of the crux of the whole trilogy, is the conflict of moral philosophy. Because on the one hand, every son is morally obligated to avenge the wrongful death of their father. Not their mother, their father. So if somebody kills your dad, you don't get a choice. You have to go and kill the guy that killed your dad or die trying to kill the guy who killed your dad. So that's the one thing. So his mother killed his father and now he is obligated to avenge his father's death. But, on the other hand, he's also morally obligated not to kill his mother because there is a, a divine moral law that no child is ever to kill their mother. So what does he do? What kind of, that's a moral dilemma. On the one hand, I'm, I have to do it, but on the other hand, I can't do it because I'm not allowed to. Well, his decision is to avenge his father, and he kills his mother. And then in punishment for that, the Furies, which are like the Greek form of judgment, the Furies come and they begin to attack him uh, because he broke the law and killed his mother. And then he tries to tell them, I had to do it, and they won't listen to him. So Apollo comes, and Apollo takes them to divine court, which is funny because the Furies kind of are themselves divine court. And he argues Orestes' case. And the whole reason that I'm giving you this giant rundown is that Apollo makes the argument that killing your mother shouldn't matter because women are only vessels. It's okay to kill your mother because the only thing she's good for is her womb. And when that doesn't work, it doesn't matter what happens to her because she's no good now. That's the argument that Apollo makes in defense of Orestes. See, it doesn't matter that he killed her. She couldn't bear any more children anyway. She, she was done. She was done being useful. What's well, that same utilitarian attitude that is then applied to the flesh? Well, if the soul's going to depart from the body, that must mean that the body is useless, right? Well, no. 
Not at all. Uh, the fact of the matter is twofold. How do you know that your body matters? And I don't mean that flesh in general matters. I mean what you have right now, the body that you are, what you look like, you know, your, the hairs on your head. How do you know that they matter? Actually, threefold. I just thought of a third thing. Well, firstly, God creates man in the garden as being unique, as different from among all the beasts. God breathes into man a spirit of life. There is soul and body. Your flesh matters because God has created it. You're not an animal. You are something else. The other thing is the incarnation, that Christ takes on your own flesh, becomes fully man. If your flesh didn't matter, he wouldn't do it. And third, the hairs of your head are numbered. He cares so much about your body, he even knows every hair that you have. Your flesh matters. So the idea that you're going to be raised again from the dead and it's going to be in a transformed body or a brand new body is not the case. You'll be raised in a glorified body, but it'll be this body just better. Everything you hate about this body will be gone and everything that you didn't even know you could love about your body will be there. The, the big example I give is you don't have to wear glasses anymore. Uh, or you won't have cavities anymore. You'll have all your own teeth. You, uh, you know, no, no more bionic limbs. You'll be able to hop and run and, you know, all that stuff. You've got a body and it's this body just better. What this body should have been from the beginning but couldn't because of sin in the world. So um, the other two things that I want to highlight is when Jesus dies, both in John and in Matthew, what does it say of him at the moment that he dies? He gave up his spirit. Yeah, and there is a temptation to look at that and to, um, and to sort of interpret it as giving up, the giving up of the Holy Spirit, which exegetically is an argument you could make, right? Because when does the spirit come to Jesus? Yeah, baptism. The Spirit alights upon Jesus. And then from that time forward, who is it that leads Jesus through his ministry? It's the Spirit. How does Jesus have the strength to endure the will of the Father and drink the cup of bitterness and wrath? Well, by the Spirit. The Spirit leads and guides him in that endeavor. So then he gets to the cross and he says, why have you forsaken me? And then he gives up his spirit. So some people can say, well, maybe you know, he's the giving up of the Holy Spirit. Now God has abandoned him. The Holy Spirit's not on him anymore. But I think you know, the church has never spoken of it that way. And how the church talks is important. So really what it is, he gives up his spirit. He dies. It's the separation of the soul from the body. That's important too because it means that God made a soul. God has a soul. He, he, he gave himself a soul for you. So it's not just that he... He like makes a flesh suit and then pours a bunch of God into the flesh suit and fills it up like one of those inflatable guys. And, oh, full of God. I'm going to go die now. No, he has a soul too. I mean, he takes on everything that it is to be human, which people don't ever think about. We talk all about, oh, he takes on your flesh, takes on your flesh. But what does it mean, you know, the phrase taking on a flesh? It means more than putting on a body like you put on a suit. Zip! Well, I'm a human now. It's more than that. It's, there's divinity 
in humanity, but humanity consists of flesh and blood and soul and mind, you know, will, reason, all of that together, okay? Um, and then James 2, I'm just going to, I'll read this to you, James 2, 18 to 26. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. That I love, by the way, just as an aside. Anybody who says, oh, I, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a really spiritual person. I believe that I believe in God. I don't need to go to church to be, believe in God, though. I can believe in God because it's just about me and Jesus. I believe in God. Well, James says, oh, good for you. Now you are at the exact level of belief that the demons have. Good for you. But maybe you can aspire for a little bit higher than demons. Maybe. I mean, that's up to you. But, no. Oh, good. Yeah, you believe, you believe there's one God. Oh, okay. Yeah, even the demons believe that. Big whoop. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, the reason I read the whole faith without works business is because none of it makes, the end verse doesn't really make sense unless you get the whole concept. So, as vehemently as he says faith without any kind of works is absolutely dead, so too is the body without the spirit dead. Your body without its soul is dead. And we'll talk about what the spirit does, but um, we have to be done here. We've got some quotes. We'll look at these next time and, and move ahead with this. But yeah, so separation of the soul. This is, this is really the idea of temporal death, okay? Um, choir, we need to quickly warm up. So we'll go to the conference room and do that. And I emphasize quickly, uh, because I've got to get into the sanctuary. And everybody else in Bible class, if you're not a part of the baptism, I'm going to close those doors. If you're not a part of the baptism, please just kind of stay outside till I open the doors. I need to go through stuff with the family. Um, very good. And I'll see you at the high altar then. <laughs>